O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Salah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness. Put an end to them. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 54, which along with Psalm 40 are the Psalms appointed for today, Friday, May the 13th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing today in the book of Wisdom, chapter 6, verses 12 to 23, uh, in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 7, the first 17 verses, and in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. So what we get, we're continuing. Remember the, the argumentation line in wisdom so far has been that the, the, the unrighteous, the ungodly, the non-believers see themselves in a way that, that is not in keeping with reality. And they, they measure it from an earthly perspective, and that's the problem. <laughs> that, that, it is a reality for us. But the problem is, is that we, we tend to focus all our lives and all our attention on the, the things that our eyes see rather than the things that our mind knows to be true as Christians. And so most of the time, we, we get caught up in the mundane and the day-to-day, and we see things wrongly. And, and the argument in, in wisdom is that the wicked always do, because they don't have the right worldview. They don't have the right lenses for looking at the world and understanding your place in the world and, and the longer arc of history— than historians measure, right? I mean, for, we're going from eternity and into eternity, and they're looking at a long arc of history that can be written from a human perspective, and, and they're seeing it wrongly because they're seeing it only from a, uh, a an earthly perspective. And so here he begins to say, how do you get that right, right? I mean, because he's already told us, uh, Solomon did over and over, and David told us first that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, And so we start by gaining a heavenly perspective. The first thing we need to do is recognize him as greater than us. Recognize him as the creator, recognizing him as the one who, without whom nothing exists. And then beginning to set a worldview and an understanding of our lives there. He says, wisdom is radiant and unfading, and she is easily discerned by those who love her and is found by those who seek her. She hastens to make herself known to those who desire her. He who rises early to seek her will have no difficulty, for he'll find her sitting at his gates. If if you are earnestly seeking after wisdom, and how do you do that, right? I mean, there's, there's a couple of different ways, right? One is that you learn more and more. So knowing, and, and that means studying, reading the Bible, going to Bible study, listening to the Word of God proclaimed and expounded. Those things are all part of gaining wisdom. But wisdom is the application of that knowledge. So you're, you're gaining wisdom by understanding more and more, but then what you do to show that you have wisdom is that you apply what you know. And so that's the really important thing. And what, what the argument here is, is that if you want it, it's not hard to find. It doesn't hide. God doesn't hide wisdom. If you seek it, you will find it because God will be there. To provide that for you. And so the second way you do that is, is in prayer. And I believe that prayer is, is necessarily coupled with the study of the Word because it, it's like, you know, probably that this is going to, this might be a problem for some people because I know people, some people who think that 
yoga is, is in and of itself evil. Well, the, the thing with a lot of yoga practices is they end with uh, a, a posture of, of simply lying on your back. <laughs> and w- what yoga teachers will say is, is that your body has just learned some things in the practice. And at the end of that, then you digest that and you make it yours. And that's the way reading the, the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, and praying over the Word of God, that is the digestion part, the part where it becomes real to you, where it becomes true in prayer. It's important that we, that we not decouple those things. Whenever you read the Word of God, study the Word of God, or hear me talking the, about the Word of God, the first thing you should do is pray and ask the Lord to show you, is that true? And if it's true, what do I do with it? And if it's not true, then I should call John and tell him. It's, it's that important. It's important, not that you take my word for everything, but that you take it to the Lord and say, is this true? And if it's true, what does it mean for me? What do I do with that truth? So he says, to fix one's thought on her is perfect understanding. If you fix your thought completely on her, on wisdom, which is comes from the Lord, that's the only place it comes from, then, then it's perfect understanding because you you rest in that truth. He who is vigilant on her account will soon be free from care because she goes about seeking those worthy of her. Worthiness is something that's going to be really important for the rest of the lessons today, by the way. And she graciously appears to them in their paths and meets them in every thought. So if you could do one thing, it would be what? Get wisdom. And if you, if, if you decide the most important thing I can have is wisdom, which would be understanding what's actually happening, taking in facts, processing those, and, and analyzing them. And, and a lot of people can quote facts but have no earthly idea what any of that means. And so wisdom is the understanding of facts and their meaning. The beginning of wisdom is the most sincere desire for instruction. I want to know. And concern for instruction is love of her, and love of her is keeping her of her laws. Oh, wait. <laughs> you mean the end of all things is not to know? It's to do. It's to do. The, the way you show the, that, that you love wisdom is to do it, the keeping of the laws of wisdom. And giving heed to her laws is assurance of immortality. Jesus says the same thing. And immortality belongs one brings one near to God, so the desire for wisdom leads to a kingdom, God's kingdom. Therefore, if you delight in thrones and scepters, O monarchs over the peoples, honor wisdom that you may reign forever. He's not suggesting they're going to have, have everlasting life and they're never going to die. No, he's saying that, that you need to pursue a wisdom that's beyond what it takes to run your kingdom. In other words, you need to bow the knee to the one from whom wisdom comes. I will tell you what wisdom is and how she came to be, and I'll hide no secrets from you, but I will trace her course from the beginning of creation and make knowledge of her clear, and I will not pass by the truth. Neither will I travel in the company of sickly envy, for envy does not associate with wisdom. Those two are different things, he says, that envy and wisdom are two things that don't fit with one another. And he's right. Because the more envy we have in our lives, envy is covetousness. I wish I had what that person had. I'm envious of what they have because I don't think they deserve it, and I should have it. If they deserve it, I deserve it, right? I'm worthy. And so that's the issue is, is that, that, that he distributes things as he wills, not as to our worthiness. 
but God's got a different plan. And so envy doesn't get us to wisdom. In fact, it keeps us from it. It keeps us from appreciating what we have been given because we'd rather have what they've been given. In the gospel today, um, Jesus finished speaking the, the lessons, the, the teachings that he had done yesterday that we looked at in those parables. He, he goes then to Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant. A centurion would be a Roman had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. In other words, he, 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 he means something to me. <clears throat> so it, 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 maybe it's suggesting that he wouldn't have done this had it not been this particular servant. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him, to Jesus, elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So he sends the Jews to do this, and they go. They go on this errand, which is Interesting. I mean, are they doing it out of obedience to his authority as a centurion? And the first thing they say is, that's not what we're here. He says, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Well, that's an interesting thought. How do you determine that this guy's worthy? Well, they tell you. He loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. Because he, he loves God's people and does things for God's people. So he, doesn't just, he doesn't just love them. He loves him indeed, right? He built the synagogue. He's worthy for that reason. They're, they're so misguided <laughs> in that idea about the worthiness. I mean, I can look at Jesus and say, Jesus, um, my friend Bob is worthy, and he's worthy for these reasons. Well, does that make him eternally worthy? Or does it make him fit to receive this gift? And Jesus went with them. So he's headed that way. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. So the centurion has now sent first the Jews and now friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. The, the Jewish leader said he was worthy, but now his friends say he said to tell you he's not worthy. He's not worthy at all. <clears throat> um, he, he understands something about who Jesus is. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. So, hey, where you are, don't come any closer for that reason. The same thing that Peter says in the boat in John 4, remember? He says, he says, Lord, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy to have you in the boat. And that's what this guy, this centurion, is saying here. Don't trouble yourself to come all the way to me. Don't come to my house. He says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, like my servant, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, that's all you have to do. You don't have to come. All you do is speak, and it'll happen. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, that followed Jesus, by the way, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So, you can read this a million times and not realize Jesus never actually saw the centurion. He didn't come. He sent the Jews, and then he sent the friends. He didn't come at all. It's an amazing thing. This guy's faith is so great, and his recognition of who Jesus is is so great, it surpasses anything you're likely to see anywhere in the Gospels. I mean, it's unbelievable what this guy's faith is and who he recognizes Jesus to be. He believes. So soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went out with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, 
and she was a widow. So she was incredibly vulnerable because this son would have been there and he would have been able to inherit the property that his father had. And also he would have been able to provide for his mother. And so now she is just one of those on the widow's roll. So she's an incredibly vulnerable person. And so what we see first, and let me point this out, he's coming to Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So now he, he comes near the town, and then there's a group of people coming out of the town with this woman. And it says a considerable crowd of the, from the town was with her. So you know, when I first looked at that and saw those things, it's like, oh, okay. It's sort of like in West Side Story, right? You get two gangs coming out to meet one another. But that's not what's happening here, obviously. But, it, but So there's a larger crowd now, simply because Jesus had a crowd, and now this crowd comes. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. I mean, she might not have received that as compassionate. <laughs> um, that might not have been her first reaction to him telling her not to weep. Then he came up and he touched the beer, the, the thing that the uh, corpse was on, and the bearers stood still. The people carrying it stood still when he touched it. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise, which is exactly the same thing he says to the synagogue ruler's um, daughter when he goes to heal her, Talitha Kum. So, arise. And can you imagine that, that that pregnant moment when Jesus touches it, they stop, and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. I mean, it's like, has he lost his mind? He, he's healed, yes, we've seen him heal people, but, but we're burying him. And, and then it says, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. So she's, she has him restored to her, but the dead man sat up and began to speak. That's one of the most powerful, it's not even a sentence. <laughs> it's one of the most powerful things you'll ever read. The dead man sat up and began to speak. What a powerful moment and what a love Jesus has for this woman to restore her son. I mean, what, a, what a, an unbelievable thing, right? What a, what a coincidence, <laughs> You know why I'm laughing, right? There's no such thing. So what a coincidence that Jesus happened to appear at exactly the right moment to be able to turn this woman's grief into joy. And he's always able to do that, and he's always willing to do that. We just have to have the patience and have to have the faith to believe that. Fear seized them all. I'll bet it did. <clears throat> and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. The great, why would they say a great prophet has um, arisen among us? Well, because two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, raised people from the dead. And so there's a sign, and, and they're, they're, they see this sign as pointing to this man's a great prophet like Elijah. Because he also raised a widow's son and gave him back to the mother. Elisha did the same thing. Here we see now, uh-oh, God's here. God has visited his people. And this report about him went spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You can guarantee that that's true, that Jesus raised somebody from the dead. We were carrying him out on his funeral bier. This guy, Jesus, stopped and told him to arise, and he did. We knew he was dead. I mean, there, there's no question that we knew he was dead. And Jesus brought him back to life. In the Colossians passage, you take that same image 
and realize that's what he did for you. You were dead in your trespasses. You weren't drowning. You're dead. You're at the bottom of the ocean. A life preserver wouldn't have done you any good at all. You have been raised literally from the dead. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ from the dead, seek the things that are above. Because seeking things on earth, what did that get you? Dead. So seek the th- if you've been raised with him, stop seeking the things below. Look for the things above. Seek the things that are above, which is what? Wisdom, right? I mean, because you've already got eternal life. <laughs> Through Christ, you've already got that. That is secure. It belongs to you. Now, seek the things that are above. Seek wisdom. Seek the stuff that, that he talks about there in, the, in that first passage we read from wisdom. And, and what we're assured of in that passage is, if you do, you will find. She will be there. She will be there to meet you. So seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. That got you death. This gets you wisdom and life. He says, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It doesn't mean that it's hidden from you because you are alive, but, but, but your life is hidden in Christ. With, when Christ, who is your life, without him you don't have life, you have the appearance of life, but you have died, and now you've been brought to life. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, that's an extraordinary promise. That is amazing, and it's true. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, because it put you to death. Put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He he says, I'm just going to make this clear. You need to understand that if you covet something, it's an idol. It has become an idol to you because it's the most important thing in your life, and you got to have it. It, it, it It is controlling you and consuming you. Your life, everything about it, is, is geared to getting that thing you covet. He said, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And it's the same message John the Baptist gave, right? Turn away from these things and turn to him because the wrath of God is coming. And we know that that's true. He's already come to give us salvation. And now he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. That's the creed. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, when, when you were buried in the mire of sin. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Ouch, 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 ouch. Right? I mean, that's... Uh. <laughs> uh. So we've got to be better at this. We've got to watch our mouths, as James says. But, but what comes out of us, Jesus says, it is only a reflection of what's inside of us. And so we can bridle the tongue to an extent. We can bite our tongue and not say something. But the reality is the root of that is far deeper. And what Paul says is you've got to get rid of the root. And you've got to be ruthless about this. And you have to put it completely away. Don't lie to one another. Seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And I keep saying this, but that's, that's the whole point of Romans 1. Don't be conformed to the world, but be renewed by the, trans, by, by, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And it begins there. That's the reason I call this faith-seeking understanding is because I believe, and now I want to know. I want to know more and more because I want to know what sort of person I'm intended to be. And to know what sort of person I'm intended to be, it means that I have to put away all these other things because all those other things influence the person I am. And so my mind is going to receive these things as true at a deep, deep level, like I know where the light switch is kind of level. And if I flip that light switch on, I know what's going to happen. I didn't wire it necessarily, but I know that that's the way it works. And so I I rely on that being true. And and I believe it's true at such a level that that's the only thing I'm going to do is flip that light switch, and that's how I'm going to get the lights on. I'm not going to do all kinds of other things, spells and incantations. No, I'm going to do just one simple thing. And, And that's exactly what we're intended to do is we're to see things in those kinds of ways to see that truth is truth, and I can rely on that truth in all circumstances. And I should point my life in the direction of truth. Why would you ever point your life in the direction of something you knew to be a lie, which already been exposed as a lie? That those things can't sustain you, not to eternal life. So why, we, why do we focus all our efforts on the thing we know to be a lie? Take it for what it is. It has a purpose and it has a value, but it's not everything. So here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. So when we see one another, we're not intended to see all those externalities of who you might be. No, I'm intended to see Christ in you. And you're intended to see Christ in me. But I need to do something in order to reveal Christ in me. Am I obscuring him with what I do or am I making him plain?